Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome to Revolution Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. This is a Truth Jihad radio show going out on revolution.radio here every Friday evening live. Uh, it's noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, and I guess now it's uh, 6 to 8 p.m. here in Morocco where I'm broadcasting out of the studio. That is the rooftop studio on the stud, meaning the Moroccan rooftop. So we have an interesting show lined up here. Tonight, we, assuming we can actually make it happen, it looks like we run into a little technical problem. The uh, second hours, second hour so far, no technical problems there. We are going to be bringing on some folks to talk about what really happened over in occupied Palestine on October 7th. First uh, part of the second hour is going to bring on uh, Ken Meyercord will join us. Ken Meyercord is the former Washington, D.C. cable news TV host. And he asks, what really happened at that famous Israeli Woodstock, which accounted for half of all the Israeli civilians killed? What if it was never even attacked by Hamas? <laughs> and we'll get into the details there in the second hour of the show. And then in the half hour following that, Sam Husseini will come on. Sam Husseini is a very, pretty well-known figure in journalistic and activist circles, also in the Washington, D.C. area, I do believe. And he's going to talk about his new article on Israel and the Kennedy assassinations. He also uh, put out a great piece and recently on uh, To Save Gaza, Invoke the Genocide Convention. So that's the second hour. First hour, I'm trying to bring on Dmitry Orloff. Major Orloff is well known for talking about the possible impending collapse of the USA. And we are trying to get him on here. Let's see what, what the progress is. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. Hey, Kev. Yes. Okay, here's here's our produ- producer, Pat, to explain how the heck we're going to try to get Dimitri on. So, hey, Pat, what's up? Uh, I don't know. I've never run into this. Okay. And he can either perhaps search for me and look for an unblock. Also, alternatively, you could call him on your phone and put your phone up to your speaker. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a working phone, so that won't work. Oh, uh, okay. So, let me, yeah. I wonder if there's some way I, if I, if I try to send your contract to, contact to him. Okay. Yeah, you could try that. Yeah, Let's so I just did. Happens. I just, so I just sent him. Your contract. Okay, this is him, and uh, this is Pat. Please unblock him. Uh, it looks like Dimitri <laughs> accidentally blocked you. He had no idea who you were. Well, Pat, what what the heck is this handle you're using with these weird foreign characters? Right? Oh, no, that that's uh, Pat Rabbit in Russian. Pat Rabbit Pat in Russian. Pat Krolik. Krolik <laughs> is Rabbit in Russian, and the three is a Russian Z, of course. You might know that. Actually, you know, I my Russian uh, is it's all Greek to me because it's all kind of yeah. like Greek characters except it's Russian. That's, that's exactly where it came from. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Right. Well, I, I do Arabic and I do French and I do Spanish and I can read a little bit of uh, Italian and even a little bit of Portuguese, but Russian, no, like even less than German, uh, which is I've four, nine, nine I've sprechens four, of Deutsch no. and even less of Russian. So anyway, uh, I just sent Dimitri your contact handle here on Skype and maybe he can figure out how to uh, get in touch with you or yes, maybe you can send, send him a Skype invitation so he can send one back to you. Uh, yeah, that work. Man, I, I have never dealt with this. I've never run into this, a block or how to undo a block or anything like that. Okay. Now he says he just sent you a Skype invitation. So wonder if that got through. Uh, well, I'm not seeing it yet. Okay. Uh, he says he did it, so. Yeah, I don't believe he, it. He, he, don't pr- it. he probably saw it. what happened was, you know, you sent him a Skype invitation. And these days, there are a bunch of spam Skype invitations that can come through. And, you know, people sometimes just assume that if they, they don't know who it is, they, they block it. Um, yeah. No, I, I introduced myself in the first sentence. I didn't uh, even put smiling wave first. I put my uh, introduction first. Huh. Oh, so boy. He, yeah. He Wait, okay, okay. Here we go. Let's see. Now, now okay, I sounds can. like we're we're on the on the path here to restoring communication. Right. Let me let me see about an ad here. Let me get to the you know, who needs the Mossad and the NSA to screw around with our show when we have our own uh, self inflicted problems here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so easy, isn't it? Okay. Maybe they should pay us for, for messing with our own shows. That might be a way to uh, try to financially support the alternative media is uh, <laughs> sabotage your own shows and, and take a payoff. Oh, man. Why not? It's probably probably yeah. be cheaper for them than having to pay their own agents to do it. Okay. I'm calling Dimitri now. Okay. He joined. He is with us. Okay. Thank you, Pat. All right. Dimitri. Hey, welcome. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm well. Hey, Thanks. So, hey, you should learn not to block uh, dicey-looking rabbits who, who chat you up in, in Russian on Skype. Too late. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, I, I usually, yeah, like, I, in time. right, I, I, I block people who have, like, these, like, sexy, you know, half-clad female profile pictures, but rabbit profile pictures, white rabbit profile pictures, in, you know, I go down the rabbit hole with them. <laughs> We're all so noted. Right. I will... I will whitelist white rabbits from now on. Okay, there we go. We got the white rabbits whitelisted. Yeah. <laughs> Black rabbits, you can blacklist them. Anyway, uh, that sounds racist, but we're not going to go there. So, Dimitri, it's great to have you back. How, how have you done? Good, good. Everything's fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and the U.S. hasn't collapsed yet, and I got out before it collapsed. So um, I guess that was probably a good move. You've been telling people to get out of the U.S. for couple of decades, I guess. And I finally did this July and moved to Morocco. So now I'm, uh, I'm, I've got, you know, bleacher seats, uh, instead of front row seats for the, uh, end of American civilization, such as it is. Well, yeah, I followed my, my own advice and, and moved back to Russia. And so that was a, a really good decision, I think. Yeah. Moving to Russia would be on my list if I were young enough to still learn Russian. But I, I didn't even know that, that Pat, the producer's weird you know, script below his white rabbit picture was actually Russian. Because as I told him, it's all Greek to me. So I'm a little, you know, I'm 64. I'm not going to learn Russian in this lifetime. 
Uh, I started studying Arabic at 35, so I have a sort of a slight leg up here in Morocco where I can fall back on French and Spanish. But so, so Russia is definitely the free world these days, isn't it? You know, compared to the U.S., maybe even Morocco. I hate to say it. Well, Russia is a little too free. Uh, they're always struggling to to ban some uh, some newfangled thing that somehow sneaks in, and they're uh, they're always kind of behind the curve on it, but sort of slowly catching up. But yeah, it's an extremely free place. Yeah, yeah. So um, not sure where where should we start here? Actually, you know, so okay, you've been writing about. American potential collapse for quite a while, and uh, I still think you and I might <laughs> we may live long enough to see your dire predictions come true. Uh, you know, every year it looks more like that. Uh, and you just wrote a really interesting piece, wherefore Israel, um, suggesting maybe Israelis should also move to Russia. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a good suggestion. Um, so, oh no, no, I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting that they should they should make up their own minds and and I'm not an advocate for any any kind of great exodus from Israel or anything like that. You're not going to personally um, ethnically cleanse it. Well, no, I, I I really don't want any involvement in any of that uh, personally. But what I think will happen is that Israel will become an increasingly dismal place to be, and. Yet, on the other hand, we have this uh, uh, an entire Jewish region, which is larger in size than Israel and, and much better supplied with just about everything you could, you, could, you could ask for, just on hot standby, you know, for the past uh, almost a century now. A uh, great gift from the Russian people to, to the Jews. So why on earth wouldn't they... Make use of that. Just get over this chosen people thing. Get over this physical manifestation of quote unquote Israel, which is a phantom, and and just get real and and find themselves a homestead. So the next uh, kind of Jewish toast is going to be uh, next year in Khabarovsk uh, instead of no, in Bidabidjan. Khabarovsk is a different region. Oh, Bidabidjan. Oh, okay. Yes. So what's the biggest city in the Jewish autonomous region? Erebidjan. Erebidjan. Okay, gotcha. Next year in Erebidjan. I'll have to change that on my listing. So as you point out, apparently that region is actually uh, has, has more growth potential than, than Palestine. Uh, the weather probably isn't quite as good, though. Oh, the weather is perfect. It's, it's below freezing for eight months of the year. Perfect Russian weather. Right. Kind we like. Yeah. Well, that's, what I, on. that's what I left when I, I, I fled Wisconsin to move to Morocco, and now I'm in the Mediterranean climate. I don't know if, if I would want to go back to a place like that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's bracing. It's, it's healthy, you know. Um, you don't have problem with uh, uh, various nasty insects because all you have to do is turn the heat off for a few days and they all die. You know, it's it's great. It's wonderful. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, when we moved here to Morocco, the, the people who'd been in the house uh, before us hadn't been careful enough with their food practices. And so there were these uh, large uh, cockroaches that we had to deal with. And I started having flashbacks mm -hmm. to the 
David Cronenberg version of the Naked Lunch, uh, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, which is pretty horrific. I would not urge anybody to watch that, especially if they have a weak constitution. Um, but we, we did manage to solve that situation without having to call in uh, Russian-style winters or Wisconsin-style winters, which are the same thing, of course. Uh, <laughs> in any case, you know, the, the real reason why folks might want to leave occupied Palestine is the reason that Gilad Atzman left and the reason that Miko Pellet left, which is that, I mean, who wants to be part of a genocidal project, right? Well, yes, that's uh, the, the genocide thing is sort of, uh, you know, it weighs heavy on the soul, I would say. So, um, you know, it's it's like, it's a very sinful place from that point of view. And why would you want to jeopardize your immortal soul with shenanigans like that going on all around you? Why not just leave? That, that would be my thinking. And, you know, the other thing is that, you know, the reason that Israel exists is because of Jewish money from the U.S., no other reason. Now, how long do you think that's going to go considering the state of finances in the U.S.? And yes, there are still people in the U.S. who consider themselves rich, but uh, that's a phantom, too. That, that's a phantom just like the rest of the financial system in the U.S. So once that gravy train leaves forever, leaves the station forever, what's going to become of Israel? Um, I, I don't think I don't think that it has much of a chance. It, it's it's a project. It's another. It's not a real country or nation or anything like that. It's just a colonial outpost, a beachhead. Right, and that Jewish money, one would assume, would eventually dry up. And of course, the taxpayer uh, money that is pried loose by the Jewish lobby would eventually dry up as the U.S. dollar loses its supremacy and the U.S. empire has to uh, retract itself. On the other hand, the Jewish lobby in the U.S. is so powerful that you could almost see occupied Palestine being the last place that they fold up their tents after they've taken out all the other 800 military bases surrounding the rest of the world. You know, they might still be trying to prop up occupied Palestine. So, uh, you know, there, there is that, like, fervent emotional commitment to it among that really wealthy and influential segment of the population. And it's, it is hard to imagine how that's going to end. Chaotically, that would be my prediction. It, it would all become very murky and strange. We might already be getting there to a certain extent. And certainly this uh, post-Alexa flood situation or Alexa storm situation is is nothing if not chaotic. And the world, a big part of it anyway, seems to be waking up to the real face of Zionism, which is a truly uh, ugly face. And people are starting to notice it. And, and then there's the kind of a, a truth process that it reminds me a little bit of the 9-11 truth process, the JFK truth process. And in those cases, with, with the JFK assassination, uh, a, a small countercultural element figured it out right away. It was repressed by all of the establishment organs. And then by the 1990s, almost 30 years after the fact, the American people had reached the point that you know, two-thirds of them realized it was a CIA-related coup. And that's still about the same uh, numbers today, apparently. And with 9-11, by 
2006 uh, Scripps poll showed 36% of American people thought it was likely or very likely that 9-11 was a false flag designed to trigger the U.S. wars uh, in West Asia. And that, you know, that number it hasn't quite reached the JFK level, but it's, it's, it's pretty high. But it, in neither of those cases did it happen fast enough to really influence or, or prevent, you know, the events on the ground from going forward, right? With, with JFK, I think that was designed to enable the 1967 war and, and that, you know, the JFK truth movement didn't stop that. And with 9-11, of course, was designed to enable the 9-11 wars and the truth movement didn't stop that. But with what's happening now, Dimitri, it seems to me that the truth about the fact that it was the Israelis rather than Hamas that killed all of those Israeli civilians, that truth is leaking out pretty fast. And that could be pretty corrosive to support for the Zionist entity. Uh, and you wrote about this in your recent piece, Wherefore Israel. Do you think that that uh, corrosive truth might actually spread fast enough to change history? Well, okay, first of all, let's back up a little bit. Uh, Israel has lost the narrative. It has lost narrative control. Uh, the, the entire world now relies on various alternative and social media to get the messages out. And the messages, the messaging coming out of Gaza and the West Bank is very, very crisp, backed up with facts and, 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 and videos in spite of uh, the fact that Gaza doesn't even have internet access. Somehow all of that information is leaking out. So you can see, you, you don't just have to look at the number of 30-plus Merkava tanks get, getting blown up. You can actually get videos of each one. And, and so uh, the entire world, minus the U.S., knows what's going on. They, they're quite aware that... Israeli propaganda and with it U.S. propaganda is to just be completely written off and disregarded. They're quite aware that everything that comes out of mass media in the U.S. is lies. Uh, that that has happened, you know. It's and, and the change is irrevocable. Basically, Israel has lost its voice in the world. It's from now on, it's going to be disregarded. Now, in terms of what that does to American politics, well, there are two points to be made there, I believe. The first is don't even bother waking up the Americans. Just hand out some fentanyl patches and let them, you know, linger, uh, convalesce, whatever it is they're doing, uh, because they've blown it as far as taking control, control of their government. They've just completely blown it. The republic is no more. And... Um, in terms of their support for Israel, well, how do you support Israel if you're broke? And that's another thing that Americans have a lot of trouble wrapping their brains around is that their country is broke. You know, right now they're still sort of running on fumes. Uh, the printing press is broken. Uh, the, the, the lending machine uh, is breaking down as we speak. Every single uh, auction is you know, has more of a tail than the previous one. And uh, the interest rate on federal debt is going through the roof. The the entire uh, discretionary spending part of the uh, of the U.S. federal budget is getting swallowed up by interest payments. So where is Israel in that? Nowhere. 
it's nowhere. And and so we don't really have to worry about anything. We have to just sit back and watch watch things unfold because the trends are unmistakable. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really a matter of time. But I guess the question of how much time is uh, is always relevant. And uh, and and then the way that it will all you know, radically shift when when the chaos breaks out. And you you know you've written about collapse, looking at what happened to the Soviet Union around 1990, and projected it as something that could happen in a much worse way in the United States. And we're kind of still you know always you know waiting for that to happen. That you know it could uh, pick up steam really. At any time that, you know, the, there, there's a huge blow to the economy and we could imagine a sort of trigger as, for instance, if the you know, shipping lanes, uh, in the Persian Gulf got cut off, suddenly world oil prices go way, way up and a, a catastrophic world depression hits and suddenly the, uh, the U.S. is unable to prop up its financial pyramid. Uh, there also, I suppose, more and worse military defeats, like what looks like is looming in Ukraine, could also have that kind of effect. Uh, at this point, you know, how, how many years are we talking about, and what kind of scenario do you think is the most likely one? Well, collapse in the United States has been going on for 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 years now. Probably a good a good point in time is uh, two thousand eight. Uh, ever since then, the direction of the, the direction of collapse has been unmistakable and irrevocable. One thing to be understood is that catastrophism has nothing to do with collapse. We're not talking about something that had, happens once and suddenly. It's a process. It goes through various stages. Sometimes one stage outpaces another. So political collapse might outpace commercial collapse. Uh, you might have a, a complete idiot for a president and the entire political system uh, becomes unworkable for a while. Or you might elect somebody who is a little bit more sane and then it looks like a political recovery of some sort. Commercial collapse, you know, the, the looting of all the stores and closing of all the stores all over the place might go on forever or somebody might put a temporary halt to it somehow, and then it would resume again. You know, financial collapse, same thing. Half the households in the U.S. are on some kind of federal support. Uh, the number of unemployed and unemployed in the U.S., which are called not in labor pool for some reason, but the unemployed is around 100 million people. That's working age, able-bodied people not working. An economy can't go on uh, being some kind of a world-class economy or or any sort of an economy with that sort of labor participation in it. Um, so collapse in the U.S. is ongoing. It's happening. It's happening. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's going to happen at different rates in different ways in different regions of the U.S.? Because it sure looks that way to me. I mean, to me, it looks like there are certain areas that are kind of shielded from it. Madison, Wisconsin, where I was 45 miles outside of Madison when I was in the U.S. We moved to Morocco in July. And the Madison area has not been hit 
by the economic collapse, it's actually doing pretty well economically because there is a medical technology industry headquartered there. There are like insurance um, software firms there, uh, that sort of thing. They follow the university. There's a bunch of tech spinoff stuff related to the University of Wisconsin that has kept that area pretty hot economically. And it's culturally weird uh, and somewhat chaotic for all sorts of reasons. The, uh, the, the liberals have all sorts of bizarre fetishes um, ranging from their dealings with the black folks who move up from Chicago to their attitudes towards gender and sexuality and things like that. So there's all sorts of cultural decadence, but the economy there is still thriving. And yet uh, you go down to Chicago and there are some areas where it isn't, to say the least. And, and likewise, up in the Twin Cities thing, it looks like the big cities are, are outpacing the somewhat smaller university towns like Madison in terms of economic and maybe cultural uh, chaos and, and collapse stuff, too. And you could imagine that regions could lose it, you know, like parts of the South where everybody is armed uh, might go first and parts of the Midwest might go later. The big cities might go first, the smaller towns later. And, you know, it might, it might be kind of a patchwork collapse. Uh, does that make sense? Well, it's been going on. Again, collapse has, has already been happening for a while now. Now, a few data points to tell you that it's happening is, for instance, uh, some Venezuelans who moved to the Chicago area have decided to move back because Chicago is less safe and less prosperous than Venezuela. Uh, another statistic is that uh, uh, African-American, uh, young African-Americans in the U.S. run three times the chance of getting shot than uh, American troops in combat situations. Um, so th those are the sorts of statistics that you can collect that, you know, that tell you that, you know, the dream is over. You know, the, the average age of the first time home buyer in the U.S. is over 40 now. Well, that tells you that people cannot start families. And if people can't start families, that means the country is going biologically extinct. Never mind that they're getting, you know, refugees from all over the place or aliens and whatever. But basically, the core population is going to go extinct if that's how your economy is functioning or not functioning, as the case may be. But in terms of where the U.S. is heading, the things to watch for are, first of all, it's completely dependent on private transportation, private cars, private vehicles. So once people can't fuel up their cars, the country falls apart. Once those diesel trucks stop running, the country falls apart. Uh, another thing to watch for is the precarious state of the, the electric grid in the U.S. Uh, it depends on a handful of uh, VLTs, very large transformers, all of them imported from either South Korea or Germany. And uh, the uh, replacement timeline for them is, is years. So uh, a few little mishaps here and there, and the U.S. no longer has it for years. And it only takes about two weeks for the process to become unstoppable, the process of dissolution. Yet another thing to watch for is the bankruptcy of the federal government. Um, 
it's been sort of a slow moving process, but you know, the way things and people, whatever countries go bankrupt is slowly at first and then all at once. So when all at once hits, the federal government can no longer spend money. And as a result of that, the United States falls apart. Sorry, states, you can all go your separate directions, but they can't. They, uh, they're just as, just as bad in terms of governance as the federal government. So most of them. So uh, that, that's going to be the point of dissolution where you don't have interstate transportation. You don't have local transportation. You don't have electricity and you don't have a federal government. Well, you know, you mentioned that first time homebuyers in the U.S. now are on average in their 40s. And that indicates that the younger folks are not doing well economically. And then ideologically, they also seem to be turning against, you know, forming families and reproducing. And I wonder how that lines up with Peter Turchin's work. You know, Turchin argues that the key factor driving political instability in, in many cases, uh, political instability responsible for the you know, fall and collapse of states and civilizations, is, is related to the overproduction of elites who no longer have enough slots uh, for all of the contenders for those elite positions. And right now we have that situation where there's the, this younger generation, some people call them Generation Z, that is not doing well economically. They can't buy homes. They're ideologically brainwashed against all forms of tradition and pride in their heritage. Uh, and yet, in some ways, you have to love them. Uh, they at least understand Palestine better than their elders do. Uh, but in any case, it seems that that process of elite formation uh, being blocked you know, by uh, you know, these structural factors, not enough slots for people competing for elite positions, could be happening in spades in the U.S. now. Turchin seems to think so, especially since we have the uh, boomers you know, hoarding all the wealth. You know, these, these aged boomers uh, tend to be very well off. That's where most of the wealth is. And then this younger Generation Z has sort of nothing and, you know, they're, they're all competing for these slots, and that might be driving some of the so-called radicalization among them. Uh, we have right-wingers, too, in that generation making their mark. Uh, and I, I see them in the comments at the UNS Review and have to, you know, admire some of the smart ones. Anyway, you, you think that Churchill's theory is right, and does that apply to what we're seeing in the United States? Well, I'm sure that um, lots of Americans think that they're elite and uh, that they're really, really good somehow or whatever and that they know what they're talking about. But I have my doubts about that. Uh, I've lived in the U.S. long enough to know that half of Americans uh, never read a book and are basically functionally illiterate. And I mean never read a book once they get out of uh, high school, if they do get out of high school. I also know that people who get out of out of high school and even some people who get through Harvard are basically um, idiots. Can I say that? Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. That they're not good at anything. But there is this culture of entitlement. Give me a cushy office job with um, access to lattes and mochaccino brownies 
and and a, a rec room where I can play ping pong, or I won't work at all. You know that that sort of attitude. Uh, so there's quite a lot of that as well. Basically, it's a bunch of spoiled nincompoops. If you want to call them elites, fine, but basically they're just people who don't want to do any of the hard work. And you know the wages of that are going to be nil. Yeah, well, I was using the word elite just in Turchin sense. You know, I wasn't using it pejoratively. I wasn't using it as a compliment. I was just kind of using it to mean the upper strata of society that manages to grab a lion's share of the resources and live comfortably. And yeah, that, that part of society where people are struggling for, for power and prestige and so on and so forth. And yeah, I think the fact that the, that strata of society in the U.S. has become less competent is obviously a, a sign of, of cultural decadence. Do you think Israel is facing something like that, too? Because certainly the IDF performed miserably on October 7th, as you mentioned. It seems that they you know, set up this high-tech uh, prison system around the concentration camp wall of Gaza. They trusted the high-tech thing to keep the Gazans at bay. They had automatic machine guns that just mow everybody down. They go off if anybody approaches the wall. And they just thought all of this automated technology would be good enough. And the Gazans were able to blind them by using drones to take out the cell towers and take out the, uh, the communications and control apparatus and then break through. And then the Gazans won the stand-up fight with the IDF repeatedly. And it turned out the IDF then seemingly panicked and invoked uh, the Hannibal Directive and, and quoting from a, a actual IDF officer, Air Force guy who participated in this, they invoked mass Hannibal which can only mean the Hannibal Directive that orders using heavy artillery to take out both hostages and hostage takers to prevent the political liability of hostages. So they apparently deliberately mowed down a lot of their own civilians. They may have also accidentally taken out their own civilians in crossfire that was mostly Israeli fire. Uh, they may have actually d destroyed a whole line of uh, automobiles fleeing from that music festival. And it they may have all been Israelis, basically. There may have been no Hamas in there at all. Uh, Kent, uh, Ken Meyerkort is going to talk about that in the second hour. In any case, all of this adds up to a an atrocious performance by the IDF on October 7th. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you think the same kinds of factors that are involved in the U.S. elite becoming so incompetent may be at work in Israel as well. Well, yes, there are two, uh, two, two parts to it. One is that uh, the IDF did, didn't just uh, fall on its face on October 7th. They fell on their face ever since, every single day. They roll with their Merkava tanks into Gaza, and then uh, some uh, some guy with a you know wearing Adidas and um, pokes pokes his head out of a hole in the ground and uh, shoots the tank using an anti-tank missile which they, they probably got from the Ukraine for very cheap. And the tank is dead. So they're losing scores of tanks. And they don't have the industrial capacity to replace them at anything like, you know, the, the, the rate that would be needed. So basically, they'll be out of armor in, in really no time, uh, long before Hamas is out of anti-tank rockets. And the other thing is that, you know, they're basically blundering around. They, they keep saying that they're, they're Hamas tunnels and they're hospitals, but 
what the rest of the world sees is that they are bombing hospitals, which is an atrocity. And uh, basically, they're, because they're doing that, that makes them war criminals, you know, queue up a war crimes tribunal. But but there's no evidence of, of uh, any serious real Hamas presence under or in those hospitals. You know, some small arms. Well, there are small arms all over the place in Gaza. Um, so basically, they, they're doing very, very badly. And they're doing about as badly as you would expect the American military to do. Now, there's a similar thing happening between the Israelis and the Americans. It's that they're basically sitting ducks. The, the, the advanced technology behind the rocketry these days, which even the Yemenites have, never mind advanced nations such as Iran, um, basically allow you to take out any sort of military facility that the Americans or the Israelis have at will. They don't have any air defense systems that could uh, uh, counteract that sort of an attack. And so the attacks against the, the Americans, American military bases in Iraq, in Syria, have been relentless. And in each case, the Americans basically do their best to pretend that this isn't happening. And the Israelis are pretty much doing the same. So the longer this war goes on, the more the military in, in, uh, in both the U.S. military and the Israeli military will just stupidly bleed without achieving anything. And so it's a dead end. It's, it's, uh, it, there, isn't, there isn't going to be any serious military victory over, over Hamas or Hezbollah or the Yemenites or, or anyone else. Well, I agree. What, what do you think about the fact that a whole lot of the so-called, you know, conspiracy community or truth community, the kind of people I've hung out with ever since I got involved in the 9-11 truth movement, seem to believe that October 7th and the Tufan al-Aqsa or al-Aqsa storm operation was all some sort of big setup by Israel so that Israel could go ahead and genocide Gaza in order to take Gaza for themselves and then have an easier shot at stealing the gas offshore. Now, to me, that seems highly unlikely, given, as you say, how atrociously Israel has performed, how embarrassing this is, and how it looks like it's likely going to contribute to the end of Israel. If they were, if they did this deliberately to themselves, they would have to be pretty stupid. Um, at least that's my take, but I, my conspiracy friends, a whole lot of them keep Pushing back, and yeah, a couple of them are actually really well-informed people. You know, most of them don't know anything about the region, but I, there are a couple who do. And so, anyway, I'm just wondering: uh, what, Do you think there could possibly be any truth to that? And, and if not, you know, why do all these people seem to be thinking that? Oh well, people always love conspiracy theories. You know, it's, you can't stop them from thinking that way. But uh, is there any evidence? Hard evidence? at their disposal. Um, I doubt it. In which case, there's nothing to talk about. Right. Yeah, well, they, the, the evidence that they try, they cite, to me, is pretty unconvincing. Uh, you know, warnings from Egypt, but we don't really know the nature of those warnings. Uh, moving Israelis' military over to the West Bank uh, due to the unrest around the Zionist settlers desecrating the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Etc. 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 A lot of uh, kind of vague stuff that 
it's not to me it's it is a little bit like but not nearly as powerful evidence as some of the pre 911 uh, activities the 46 drills uh, around 9-11, 27 of which happened that day, including moving all of the U.S. air defenses up to the North Pole to uh, run an exercise imaginary, imagining uh, a Russian attack and things like that. There's Around 9-11, there's a lot of very convincing circumstantial evidence that there was an, a major you know, orchestrated plot. But around this Alexa storm, it looks to me like there isn't. And, and more importantly, that whoever did 9-11, the neocons and the Zionists, of course, knew that they would benefit. Obviously, they're going to benefit if they can get away with pinning this on radical Muslims. Yet, with this Alexa flood operation, Alexa storm, how could Israel really, you know, have any confidence that setting themselves up for such a crushing and catastrophic defeat that has utterly ruined the reputation of the vaunted IDF is going to somehow play out in their benefit? So. To me, it's it's that uh, the who benefits argument, which works pretty well for 9-11 conspiracy theories, uh, does not work so well for this one. Well, for 9-11, the the key question is, how do you take out three skyscrapers using two planes? Right. I mean, it it basically, if you you can answer that arithmetic conundrum, then yes, the official story is fine. If not, then you have to dismiss the official story. And that's a good starting point for just about anybody. With the Al-Aqsa flood and uh, October 7th, uh, it's just a big, big, hot mess. And it was, in a sense, inevitable because uh, there was a point to how far Hamas could be pushed and uh, how far the people of Gaza could be pushed. It was an absolutely inevitable uprising. It was a matter of time. And so why did it happen then, as opposed to two weeks later or or three months later? Well, it may have something to do with the realization that the the Arab world, or actually the, the, the rulers of the Arab world, uh, were ready to leave the Palestinians behind for their own, uh, you know, for the sake of their own greed, because they they saw that there was a, little, a bit of money to be made by cooperating with the U.S. and with Israel, and the Palestinians be damned. And so the the Palestinians had no choice but to up the stake, you know, to double down. And the other thing is that, um, you know, there's this phenomenon called the, the Arab Street, which a lot of people still think is the Arab Street in in Arabic-speaking countries, but it's not. The Arab street is in Western Europe and the United States. And that's where the the, the vehement opposition to Israel is now brewing. And that's where it will make itself felt. Because, you know, these uh, Middle Eastern regimes are quite quite, uh, repressive and and they can they can take a lot of demonstrations, and, and if it, if if they feel that their their power is in danger, they'll start firing at crowds or doing whatever they have to to disperse them. But uh, the but Western Europe and and uh, to some extent the United States are soft targets as far as the Arab Street. And now that everybody gets is getting whipped up into 
into this anti anti Zionist fervor, you know, the plan seems to be working. Yeah, I agree. And, and unlike you know, so-called Al Qaeda, which really didn't have a plan uh, on 9/11, that is, if you're imagining that 9/11 were somehow an, the actual Al Qaeda attack that we were told, then it would have been a strategic failure on the part of, of Al Qaeda because they they didn't have really a plan to follow that up with anything that could discourage the West from continuing to wreak havoc in the Muslim world, on the contrary. But with this, I think Hamas actually does have a plan, and you know, Hamas has basically got the Zionists where, where they want them now and, and rearrange, you know, rearrange the whole uh, game board to, in, in their favor uh, in terms of long-term you know, st- strategy for trying to liberate Palestine. It's painful, of course, for the people of Gaza, to say the least, uh, but the plan makes sense. They've got the Zionists saying that, you know, well, this, our war aim is to utterly obliterate Hamas. Well, it's very likely that they just can't possibly do that, and so they're bound to fail. And they've got the Arab street, not only in the West, but I, I think the Arab street, you know, here in the Arabic speaking countries, I'm in Morocco is still a factor. And I think the leadership has to consider it. Uh, and so the, the whole uh, paradigm has shifted. And I'm wondering, you, you think that this is going to lead the uh, West Asia region to radically realign even faster than it was already working towards uh, towards the independent countries, that is the you know, Russia, China, Iran bloc, uh, and, and get out from under the West, you know, given the total disgust with, uh, with the Zionist genocide that we're seeing now. And I think to some extent, even among some of the rulers in this part of the world. Well, it's a process. Right now, uh, the, the Sahel region, the sub-Saharan Africa, is very successfully getting out from under France with some token Russian support. Basically, the Russians get a lot of uh, a lot of points immediately in those places because they they refuse to treat the Africans as something other than human beings, which the French do. Uh, the, the French are basically conditioned to to treat anybody but the French as inferior. And and uh, people are just Absolutely sick of that. And, and so a little bit of Russian aid goes a long way in boosting the morale and in kicking out the French and they're losing, losing ground and ground in country after country. So after France gets kicked out, the next wave is to get the U.S. out. And, uh, again, what's going on in the, in the Middle East right now and in Syria and, uh, and Iraq and, and, uh, probably in Israel as well and, and other parts of the Middle East, is that you can pretty much just blow up U.S. Army bases and they'll sit there and take it until they've had enough, at which at which point they'll leave. So if that, since that's the strategy that the U.S. has, is this lily pad strategy of putting down army bases, military bases all over the place, which are basically indefen- indefensible from long-range standoff rocketry, uh, you can you can pretty much harass them until they've had enough and leave. And given that the Americans can't afford any of that anymore, they are going to leave. And that will basically vacate the, the, the space 
for for new uh, for new influences to come in. And will that process work also with the Zionist entity, which is in a sense like a bit like one of those lily pads? That is, can the uh, the local forces make life hot enough that the Zionist entity is forced to either radically reform, uh, sort of like you know, South Africa did circa 1990, or or disappear, uh, or uh, will the Zionists retain enough of an ability to flatten any neighbors who try to do that uh, to you know hold out for a while? Well, there are a lot of things going wrong right now in Israel that uh, will cause trouble later on. First of all, they're losing a lot of soldiers. They they lost a lot of conscripts. The professional Israeli military is actually rather small. They 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 have a lot of conscripts that have no choice. Their their training is as bad as American training, as bad as the training that the Americans and other NATO members provided to the Ukrainians, which caused a massacre on the Ukrainian side. They basically don't know how to attack using uh, armor and infantry working together. They just don't know the know-how. They don't, don't have the know-how. So the, the casualty rate, both in knocked-out tanks and in mowed-down infantry, who uh, tend to cluster together. They don't know how to, how to work in small formations. Um, you know, that that's going to be a rather sore point because these uh, uh, young men and lots of women among them uh, were not supposed to die, you know. They were supposed to be doing this like police duty kind of thing, you know, against vastly inferior enemy, basically using tanks again against uh, um, Palestinian lads, lads armed with rocks. Um, but suddenly they're in, in uh, high intensity combat situations. So I don't think they'll hold up under stress. And I don't think society, the parents and grandparents of of these kids are going to hold up under strength, under stress. So that's going to happen. The other thing is that uh, right now there's a military operation going on, which will be extended for as long as possible because the Israeli government has no public support outside of that military operation. So while the military operation is ongoing, people don't want to raise political trouble. But as soon as the operation ends, which it will have to at some point. You know, basically the Israeli military will run out of material. They're running out of shells already. Those 155 millimeter shells get pretty scarce in the world. The only people who can make lots of shells fast enough are the Russians. Um, But once that happens, they'll have to call, they're already calling a truce, but eventually they'll call a ceasefire. And eventually they'll have to get back to politics. And then what, what will happen to this incredibly unpopular Israeli government? Who knows? Uh, and the other last thing is that, you know, Jews are a migratory people. Yes, they have had this beachhead in Israel for, for a few generations now. But it doesn't mean that they've lost their uh, basic instinct for the main uh, method they've had for 2,000 years of survival and conflict avoidance, which is to flee. So at some point, 
the Jews will make up their mind that Israel has become a poor bet for them and will get out. Some folks think that the Ukraine war was designed to depopulate the ancient homeland of the Khazars, which is the true Jewish homeland, so it can be repopulated by people fleeing uh, Israel. Does that make any sense to you or not? Makes no sense at all. Sorry. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll bring on. Yeah, I'll bring on somebody like Richard exactly. Cook, a very, very smart guy. Actually, kind of, I don't know if he believes that, but he he kind of leans towards it. I think maybe I'll, I'll have him <laughs> talk to you sometime to explain that because I I'm not so sure myself. Uh, but uh, okay, we only have a couple of minutes, like you know, maybe two to three minutes, and I remember back. Uh, oh, 15, 20 years ago, when I first encountered your work around collapse, that there was that uh, discussion of peak oil. And what, where has the prognosis gone since then? I know there's some people who think that you know, solar and these other alternative technologies may actually be more promising than a lot of folks thought back then. And uh, are, are we, you know, is peak oil contributing to this uh, process driving American collapse, and is it a threat to human civilization or not? What do you think? Well, peak oil came and went in, in uh, 2005, and then a few years later, in, in 2008, right on schedule, um, there was the financial crash, and uh, that was precipitated by oil prices going to around 150 a barrel, which was a lot of money at the time, not so much money now, but what has postponed the collapse of the industrialized West specifically was the fracking phenomenon in the United States. Basically, fracked wells uh, in their huge proliferation were a money loser, but they kept the flow. So basically, all of the depletion around the world since then has been compensated temporarily by all of the fracked oil in the United States. But basically growth in the, in the fracked oil patches in the United States, uh, except for maybe for Permian, has stopped. It's on a plateau. And given the depletion rates of, of fracked wells, uh, the decline is going to be as precipitous as the increase. And the United States has no ability to, uh, import enough oil to keep its economy running once fracked oil runs out. Keep in mind that, you know, the, it, the U.S. produces something like 12 million barrels a day of fracked oil. It still has to import some oil because the fracked oil is too light to make diesel. And without diesel, the, the truck fleet stop and Walmart has to shut down and all sorts of things. Basically, you don't have an economy in the United States without diesel trucks. So basically, it, the whole thing is on borrowed time as far as, as, as far as peak oil. And what we're waiting for is basically for the second shoe to drop, which is the end of the fracked oil bonanza in the United States. And that could come sooner rather than later, it sounds like. Well, it's hard time it. Uh, Robert Berman tried to, uh, I mean, Art Berman tried to time it a while ago. And, and uh, that didn't work out. So I'm not going to mention that. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have to uh, get the specific prediction 
some other time because the background bumper music is running. Well, thank you, Dimitri Orlov. Great to touch bases with you again. I think you're right, right on target on uh, everything. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Dimitri Orlov, Kevin Barrett here of kevinbarrett.substack.com. Back in the second hour with Ken Meyercord and Sam Husseini. Stick around.